yeshiva. And the best thing I learned about the Israel yeshivas are what they ask on their interviews. So I love, I didn't even go in there, I love, I know it's a Shavim Kol, it's talking about the yeshivas, okay? I love my Bush interviews. They didn't ask such sharp questions. So they ask them, my Bush interview, they play a little scavenger. They ask me, can you find a list of the back of Gemara? You know where the Ron is? What about the Mar of Kayas? Where's the Mar of Shif? He notes something that anybody who's ever opened up a marsha should notice right away, which is that the marsha is printed in two different fonts. There's a larger font, which are the chidushim of the marsha on shas, mostly discussing totsvos. The marsha's trying to figure out difficulties in totsvos, uh, mostly. And then there's a smaller font where the Marsha discusses Chidushe Agados. It's always started with a Ches Aleph, it stands for Chidushe Agadata. And it's two different fonts and it runs throughout. So I always thought that you have the big font for Tosos and you have the little font because, like, to know where to skip. You know, you skip over the Agadata parts, you're not going to go through every Marsha Chidushe Agadata. It's ridiculous. So to know when he kind of veers off the Lundus Trail, uh, they printed it in a different font. But the Marsha, if you read his introduction, the Masechus Brothers explains that's not why it's written in a different font. It was written in a different font because there were really two different svarim. He wrote a sefer on Shas, and he wrote a sefer on Agadita. And he was upset. Read the first Maramakam on the first page. The Al-Kain Tahisi Al-Rishonis. I regret what I originally did. Shechilaki Chibor Hazel Abeis Chalakim. I divided up this uh, work into two different parts. The Hainu Chelik Echad Me Chedushi Agados, one part that has Chedushi Agados. Avali Lohai Esher Bechazara Lachabro Shub Chibor Echad Mibdeatar. I couldn't integrate them into one work. So what did they do? In future editions, they integrated these two to make sure they were one work. Why did they integrate them? It's exactly the idea that we started off with of the relationship between nomos and narrative, the relationship between our law and the stories that guide our law. And Rav Cook says something very similar, he has the beautiful, beautiful words in Oros HaKodesh, he writes, They need to be united with one another. By integrating them, it really brings out the greatness in both of them which is the point that we started off with. It's not just enough to learn both of them. They need to be integrated because law alone cannot be, perpetuate a tradition, a misora, and a gata alone cannot perpetuate a misora. There's actually a very interesting phenomenon if you, if you uh, hang out in academic circles, which, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody. They're not a whole lot of fun. But if you ever go, there, you go to two types of conferences. You can go to a Talmud conference, and you can go there. Conferences on mysticism, on Kabbalah, they spell it with a Q. You know, you can go to two different types of conferences. So if you go to a Talmud conference, an academic Talmud conference, there's a mincha every 15, 20 minutes. Most Talmud scholars are all, in some way or another, pretty traditional, connected to halacha individuals. You find exceptions here and there. By and large, the major figures of the Talmud conference, kosher food, and there's always going to be a mincha, you'll find the maravin and everything. You go to a Kabbalah conference where they're just studying mysticism, so everybody's wearing purple yarmulkes and purple robes and capes and everything. Not everybody's davening mincha. Why is that? Because 
when you have the law, so the law is something that you can be obedient to, something you can guide to, but if you go to find yourself at a Kabbalah conference, and there's no connection for a lot of the, as sure the academic world, to more traditional law-based Judaism, you float off what is called, the, the word that we, we already confronted in that article, antinomianism, which means you, you, you reject the law. Nomos meaning law. So what we need is to be misache, the halacha and the agartha, the nomos and the narrative. So how do we do that? How do we unlock the esodos of agartha? How do we take these narratives and really weave them into our Gemara tradition? So number two on the list is asking great questions. And I want to talk about what this means. There's a fantastic piece that uh, Rev. Hutner writes Rev. Hutner writes in, uh, in his Sefer Zikaron. Sefer Zikaron wasn't really written by Rev. Hutner, it was written by his daughter, and if anybody has a connection to him, I'd love to meet him, Israel Kurzner. Israel Kurzner was a finalist for the Nobel Prize in Economics, I believe, last year or two years ago. Rav, one of the major Tamide Muvhak of Rev. Hutner uh, was a Nobel Prize finalist. I, I, I've never heard him speak, I just know his name, and, and he's connected to both worlds. Anybody in the crowd has a connection? Feel free to invite me to lunch with him. So Rav Hutner writes, Rav Hutner writes as follows in the Sefer Zikaron, which is after he passed away, they put together a lot of his Torahs. He says, Ein Simcha, on, on the Maimakomo, this is like, it, it looks like it's blacked out. I, it didn't come out good. On my copy it did. I'm a lucky guy, but I'm really sorry about that. Ein Simcha El There's no joy el, only with wine. Al Piremez Yitachin. We could explain as follows. A little bit of wine fills you up. Tuva Mugragar. You have a lot of wine, and this is true. You get hungry. You get a little bit hungry. On Purim, the Suda, so the Suda starts, everybody feels very full after the first glass of wine. Like, I don't have to get through this. After people have a couple more wines, so then the chicken nuggets are all over your shirt, and everybody's looking to grab more and more food. It makes you very, very hungry. So the Maharami Prague Pirish. Look at the bottom, um, uh, where that Maramakom is. I think it's in Gevuras Hashem. I could be wrong. Uh, it makes you hungry and it satiates you together. How can you do such a thing? So Rav Hutner writes, Hashem. Yismach Leiv, the, the heart rejoices for people who seek HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Hainu Afal Gav that Minyone Chol in secular life, Habakosha Lemilu Ritzono Chalamavakesh Eina Elatzar. If you're missing something and you want it to be filled up, it's painful. Vahasimcha Eina Ba Kim Laachar Mikain Kishen Ismala Harotha. Once HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives you what you're asking for, Mikal Mokom Baruchnius Ein Hadavrakain. It's the exact opposite. The very act of requesting something, the want, the desire, that's the very place where the joy is. It satiates you and it makes you hungry. Because in Ruchnis, the hunger itself, that sense of, of longing for something, of going towards something, is what brings Simcha. The the satiation and the hunger are both wrapped up with one another. The fact that you're looking for something, the journey to fill something up, is the very thing that brings you joy. 
And there's nothing that opens up that simcha, that joy, than a question. A question, as opposed to an answer, is filled with possibilities. There are a hundred ways to find a, a great, um, to fill up a great question. A question is what opens up that tshuka and that simcha. Uh, we already know, in um, for the Shalavim, I already quoted Gush, we quote a little bit of Shalavim. Rabbi Pa, he's not even in Shalavim anymore. Okay. Rabbi Pilot, who used to teach in Shalavim, I think he teaches in Yisrael Leib, he wrote a fantastic uh, Chazara Sefer. I'm not sure what it was. I didn't read through the whole Sefer, but the Hakdama is a very nice Hakdama. And the name of the Sefer is Shailas Chacham Chati Tshuva, which I have from the Maram Al-Shaka, the Megdalos quotes it, which is that asking a great question is already part of the answer. I have quoted from the Hakdama of this country uh, from Rabbi Pilot. We're not going to read it inside. But it's a very, very nice introduction. But the very concept we're saying is that a great, a great question, a great question can really, can really open up and really explain and begin that journey of chuka. And this is what the Maharal also writes. Rav Hartman, in a footnote in Beragola, says the same thing. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, when it darshans out the description of David HaMelech, calls that when David HaMelech is first introduced, it says that he's a gibor, and that he's, a, and he's, and he's beautiful, and he's yodea nagi. He knows how to play an instrument. So the Maharal writes that the fact that, and, the, and the, sorry, the Gemara in Sanhedrin writes that yodea nagi, the fact that he knows how to play an instrument, what does that really mean? The Gemara says yodea lisho. He knows how to ask a question. So the Maharal wants to know, why is the fact that he's able to play music the fact that he's able to ask a question. Why should it be the fact that he's able to give an answer? So the Maharal writes, and the Hartman explains over here in a very, very nice footnote, that questions are what bring the joy. Questions are like music. Music opens up your world of possibilities. It calms you down. It relaxes you. It excites you. It inspires you. Questions are what are most inspiring. And there's no question when it comes to Agatha, when it comes to Agatha, what we need to do is learn how to ask refined questions. The difficulty so often in learning Agatha is that we haven't really been trained um, how to ask a very, a very, very strong, a very, very strong question. Uh, there are a lot of svarim that teach us the questions to ask when we approach a sugya in shas. Is it a dindaraisa? Is it a dindarabana? Is it din in the chefta? Is it din in the gaba? Is it? Uh, is it a mitzvah saseh? Is it a mitzvah lo saseh? Is it sheh valtaseh? Is it a kumbaseh? And all of a sudden we approach a gadata and we're lost. We're lost. We're not sure what are the key questions, what are the things we're going to ask. We just throw our hands up in the air and say, what does this all mean? That's not a sharply articulated question. That's not a question that's going to be yodeya nage that's going to really build that shuka of wanting to learn and find out the possibilities. A great question is something that opens up worlds of possibilities. And learning to sharpen those questions is what's going to open you up to uh, fantastic learning of Limit Agavita. The Pasuk in Mishle, we're going to number three, says, Tapuche Zahal Vemashkios Kesev Daver Daver Al Ofnam. That the Rambam in Moranavukim says that uh, in explaining this Pasuk, he says that the words of the Chachamen. Davar Davar al explaining the words of the Chachamim are like tapuche zahav b'meshkios kesev. It's like golden apples. It's like golden apples in silver casings. In silver casings. 
So what's pshat in this mushal? Why is it a gold apple and a silver casing? What is that coming to tell us in the mushal? So the, the Rambam says it most basically, that the reason why it's gold with silver inside is very simply, I'm sorry, it's, it's silver uh, lattice work with gold inside, because when you approach the words of the Chachamim, from the outside, you look at it and say, oh, it's worth silver, it looks good, but we don't know how much it's worth. And you go a little bit deeper, and then you see it's worth more money. There is a fantastic Tom Chachamar Yisrael, who is, who is not very well known in America. His name is Beryl Gershenfeld, he's a Rosh Hashiva in Machon Shlomo and Machon Yaakov. Um, he was a Fulbright scholar, and he became a Balchuva later on in life in the Talmud of Rav Moshe Shapiro. He's probably one of the most major figures in Jewish outreach in the last uh, 30 years. He's, he's really an incredible person. He hasn't written a great deal. When his father passed away, he wrote an article in a journal that, that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Jewish Thought, a journal of Torah scholarship, which had a couple, it had five or six issues that were all fantastic. And over there, I thought he says a really amazing point for how he explains this mushal of Tapuche Zahav B'Meshkiyos Kesev. Why do we talk about the words of Agavata as golden apple and silver casing. And he writes over here, the metaphors of gold and silver are not incidental. And this is a fantastic article. The whole article, which goes through analysis of content and process in the Talmudic Agavata, is a great, fantastic article. If you email me after, I'll send it to you in a second. It's very hard to find. About how to pick apart an Agavata. You could go through the whole article. It teaches you half of what you need to know. But he writes over here, the metaphors of gold and silver are not incidental. Silver provides man with a currency of exchange through which he can procure his daily needs. Gold is too valuable to employ for daily transactions. It defines value and is used only for major investments. Similarly, the external understanding of an agata is like silver. It inspires man, enabling him to meet a basic need for initial understanding. The deeper meaning like gold, gives value to man's existence. And sometimes you come across a Maimar Chazal and you have a good drusha on it. You have a nice drusha on it. And it's kind of, it inspires you for five or six minutes. That's the silver casing. The point of learning a God is to find the answers, to find the explanations, to unlock them, that it defines value itself. It's something that literally gives a framework for how to, uh, how to approach life itself. When the base Yosef, when the base Yosef has a famous kasha on Hanukkah, has a famous kasha on Hanukkah about why do we have a candle for the eighth night if there was enough oil for the first night. So I think it was Rav Yosef Engel who wrote a sefer that has a hundred, a hundred answers for this one kasha, for this one kasha. So I forgot who it was. Uh, my Rebbe Ari Bergman used to always say that you don't want, you don't want a uh, a hundred answers to one kasha. You want one answer that answers up a hundred different kashas. Because if you have a yisod, if you have a, a concept or a foundation that really defines value itself, then that's going to be able to cover and really explain a whole theme, a whole framework. Uh, when I was in YU, I took a class with Dr. Berger, and uh, he, he said that there used to be a problem in, uh, in a lot of messianic literature about how Mashiach was going to come. He said, some people say that Mashiach is going to come on a cloud. He's going to float down like a cloud, based on some uh, explanations in, uh, in Tanakh. And some say that Mashiach is going to come on a donkey, riding on a donkey. Also, in the Gemara, they talk about that. 
So there are people who wanted to explain. So which one is it? Is it a cloud or a donkey? So the, some of the greatest scholars didn't know how to give answers that were of gold. So they said, he's going to come on a cloud shaped like a donkey. So that's not the type of agonic thinking that's going to really be the, the worth of gold inside. Um, it's better than a donkey shaped like a cloud. That would be terrifying. That would be a very scary way for Mashiach to reveal himself in this world. But uh, e- either way, that type of very sloppy yishuv to a, uh, to a serious question isn't the type of sophisticated, serious answers, the gold inside that we're looking to, uh, to explain our, uh, our chazals. So let's keep on going. We are, we are very tight on time, and we're going we're gonna to go through a few of the other principles for learning Agatha, looking closer at analogies. So some of the most famous analogies that we find, what do I mean by analogy? The Gemara all of the time uses analogies. Um, Kolmine, you know, Kol whoever gets angry, Kolmine Gehenim Shaltenbo. It's like he's in Gehenim. There's a whole list of famous analogies in Brachos. In Brachos, it says, Chalom uh, Echen Mishishim So if you're like an SAT person, you have Chalom on one side and Nevu on the other side, and you try to figure out what they're like. You're not looking close enough. A, you have to, you have to really take apart the analogy, not just to say that Chalom is a little bit like Nevuah. Ask the question, why did the Gemara, why did the Gemara choose the Dafka to express this analogy, specifically using the language of Shishim, of the 60th? It could have just said, Halom is Ke Nevuah. Why did it specifically use the language of 60th? There's another Kasha that Mayor Schulzinger asks in his Mishmar Alevi, there's a famous Gemara that asks, that calls Gerim, is Kashim Kisapachas. Gerim are like Tsaras. So all the Rishonim talk about why are they compared to Tsaras. Nobody explains why do we use the analogy specifically of tsaras. When you, the Gemara uses an analogy, don't just nod your head and say that's okay. You have to ask yourself, why specifically is the analogy being expressed this way? And what is that teaching us? Let's keep going. Number five. This is very important, particularly when you are in yeshiva. It's an idea that you're all going to hear uh, next week, I have no doubt. Every Mesechta in Shas, particularly in Babli, has a theme. The theme of the Mesechta affects not only the Halachas in the Mesechta, but it also affects the Agathas in the Mesechta. Rav Sadek points this out in his Mamer Kedusha Shabbos, most famously in what we're going to be discussing uh, next week. V'yadua ki chazal kavu, I'm on the top of page 3, kol davar b'talmud b'mokom haroi, it's not a coincidence. It's not just that uh, they didn't have a place to put it. It's deliberate why the Gemara chose to put something in a specific place. Right next week is going to be Tishabav, and we learn the stories of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. So everybody knows the story of Bar Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And they could probably find it if they were put a gun put to their head. They'll say, oh, it's in Mesechah's Gittin. But the first question you have to know is, why all of a sudden did this story come up in Mesechah's Gittin? So the answer that many of you, I'm sure, have heard is that the Churban Beis Hamikdash, the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, is like a divorce between Kla Yisrael and Akavis Baruch Hu. Kamosha Kosov Hing Yishlach Ishes Ishto. Sukkim that are talking about Gerishin, Ko'amar Chazal, Dinidono Begerishin, Alkach Makomo Begin. This is the most famous example, but challenge yourself in every Masechta. What, what about the stories of Ma'an Torah? What Masechta do those appear? What about the Sugis of Gerus? What Masechta does those appear? What about the Sugis of teaching your kids? What Masechta does that appear in? 
You should go through every single Masechta and be able to talk and find themes that overlap the entire Masechta. Sometimes it's super obvious. But every Masechta, Reb talks about every parak having a theme. I don't always... I don't always necessarily find that, but there's no question that the way the Gemara was Masader, there are, there are often stories that weave through entire Masechtas. Don't just nod your head and say, oh, that's interesting. We heard about him on uh, Dav Zion. What's he doing over here on Dav Samachvav? You know, like, I guess, they, you know, I guess they, they just wanted to bring it up again. There's a reason why they put that there, and we should challenge ourselves to think a little bit more deliberately about the themes of our Masechtas. Going a little bit deeper, there's another question, which is why here? I noticed that somebody asked this in her doctoral dissertation. Jenny Rosenfeld talks about that she wrote a dissertation that deals a lot with the writings of Rabsodok and sin and failure and averas. And she asks that Rabsodok all of a sudden talks about a mimer in the Gemara that ain't adam omi al Torah el it's a mimer that a lot of people, I'm sure, in the room have heard. A person doesn't stand up on Torah, El Imke unless he's fallen by them first. And what's so strange is this Gemara only appears one time in the context of Shakavatar and the Gemara. The Gemara, I have the Gemara over there on Gittin and Gimel Medalov, is talking about the Kiddushin of Chetzia Isha, Chetzia Baschorin. And the Amori gives a Havamina of whether or not such a Kiddushin for somebody who's only half free is Chav. And the Amora says, what are you talking about? Your Havamin is totally wrong. So he responds, okay, Ain't of the moment, I'll give you Torah, LMK, Nichshobahem, a beautiful mimer, and then he gives his maskana that the Kedushin is Chal insofar as the Kenyan is able to, uh, to affect the, uh, the change of the woman. It, it strikes me, I, 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 unless somebody has found it, I haven't found anybody, and it's a, it's a, it's a black and white Tasha. Why in all of Shas, did the Gemara choose to put this Gemara in the context of this conversation? She noticed it when she did her dissertation. She says, you know, Reb Sadov takes it out of context. It's very strange why the Gemara brings that up here. You absolutely need to figure that out. Don't just take that for granted. Rabbi Salavichik talks about, in the first paragraph of Sanhedrin, on the Avavah Medbeis and Zion, the Gemara starts talking about Pshara, about when you have a Bezdin, in a case where you have a dispute with one another, you could have a pshara. You could, you could go and you could make a compromise between the two parties. When you're able to do it, what type of dayanam you need in that case. And all of a sudden the Gemara starts going on a tangent. And it starts going on a tangent about talking about what were the mamorim that people would kind of mutter, the pithy statements that people would say that, were, that had sources that were rooted in psukim, that were rooted in Tanakh. And you have a whole davzayin, a whole list of these, and then the Gemara carries on business as usual. I was intrigued by this, because Rabbi Salavechik and Rabbi Tzadik, I don't know how many times they overlap. This is one of them. They both want to know, what on earth is going on over here? We're talking about Pshara. The Gemara, okay, it starts talking a little bit about Pshara in a Gada context. And then it like veers off the rails and starts quoting a lot of Agadahs. So sometimes the Gemara starts bringing out a lot of Agadahs because it's the same Manda Omar who said, what I got to so they bring a whole lot of it. But we could challenge ourselves thematically to understand that there's really very often a much, much deeper connection between the tangential statements of the Gemara, especially in the Agatha, and the overall themes that they're telling us, and the context in which they say the Agathas very much often provide the keys for how to understand them. 
Number seven, what is the Makor? What is the Makor? So this is at the bottom of page three. And this question, this question we're used to dealing in in some context, where we ask, for sure, in a sugya, in a halacha, what's the, what's the Makor for this din? Where do we know that it's from? In Agadita, I'm talking about it in, in, in two other contexts, which is a little bit different. And stuff that you're probably very familiar with. What is the Makor in Agadita? It's always understanding who is the Manda Omar. Who is the Manda Omar? Rizzolik points out in many places that the Lashon of the Gemara always, when it quotes a statement from somebody, is Aliba the Manda Omar. Why does it say Aliba the Manda Omar? According to this person. Rizzolik says it comes from the language Alev the Manda Omar. It comes from this person's heart. It comes from his unique experiences and his unique outlook. And very often we need to understand why are, why are certain halachic and agadic statements being attributed to specific people. There's a theme throughout Masechus Kedushin about a question of when we connect Havaya when do we connect the laws of Gitin and the laws of Kedushin. And all throughout the Masechta we have Reish Lakish, V'tzavach Reish Lakish K'kruchia. He screams out and he says, we have to be Makish Havaya Litziya, V'leked Eshkachvei. Nobody pays attention to him. So I always wondered, why all of a sudden is this, is this Reish Lakish's like uh, cr- uh, cross to bear that he's got to make sure that we always compare the dinim of Gittin and Gerashim, of Gittin and Kedushim. A, a more famous example, again, where Rabbi Salavajik and Rav Cook have the same vart, is, uh, I think they have the same vart, unless it was just a vart that Rav Salavajik heard from Rav Cook, and I think it's more the latter, where in Avos, it talks about the, the being the, being metakein, the brach, the brach of Vala Malshinim. And it says, everybody forgot how to be metakein Vala Malshinim. And Omad Shmuel HaKotan Vitikna. Shmuel HaKotan got up, and he was metakein, and he was metakein, um, why Shmuel HaKotan? Of all people, he, he was just the only one in the base message, the only one who didn't forget. We have to know the makor of these devarim. I don't mean the makor for the din, because I got it to we have no din. Who's the person? Who's the aliba demanda amar? Who is the lave who created this perspective and created this Torah? Similarly, with number eight, um, there's a, a yisod brought from Ritzadik. It's sometimes quoted from the Vilna Gaon. I've never seen it inside in the name of the Vilna Gaon. Ritzadik quotes it all over the place from his Rebbe, the Ishbitzer. Um, where he says in Yisrael Kedoshim, based on a Gemara in Bava Kama, but he says, Upam Rishon Shenizkar B'Torah Milas Kedusha, the first time the word Torah, the, in the Torah, the word Kedusha is mentioned, who ate so Yom HaShabbos, is by Shabbos. Niyad B'Briyas Ha'olm B'Parshis Barach is by Evarat. V'Kibalti, says Reb Tzavah, Shebechol Dover V'Inyan B'Makom Shemilazu Nizkar Pam Rishona B'Torah, Shom Hu Shorach Inyan. The first time something is mentioned, the context in which it is mentioned, is the shorish, is the foundation of that concept. This is a really important principle, both in Torah and in Torah to understand when do the Chachamim introduce to us certain concepts. Over here, Rebbe is talking about the word Kedusha. This is really important with words. Ask yourself this, when's the first time the word Zman appears in the Torah? It's not in the Torah. It's not in Bereshish Shmos. It's nowhere there. Where's the word zman, time? That's a basic term. Where does that first appear? They talk about the word suffix. Does the word suffix appear in the Torah? I'll do you one better. Where's the word avera? Doing an avera, where does that first appear? 
In all the Mishnahs, we talk about Averis ben Amla Makam, Averis ben Amla Chavera. How come we don't have any mentions of Avera in, uh, in the Chumash? In the Chumash, we only talk about La'av or Al-Briso. We have verbs, but we never have a noun talking about Avera. P.S. We don't have a noun, to my knowledge, called Teshuvah in the Torah either. These are questions when are concepts first introduced and when are concepts first born out that should tell us and we should pay close attention because they reveal a lot about the Shoresh of those concepts. How are we all doing? We got through the first eight, so that's pretty good. And we have four minutes left for the last two, so we could do this really, really leisurely. We could stroll down these last two. Um, okay. Number nine, I heard this from Rev Hartman, maybe Shul Hartman. I don't know where he lives now. I think he lives in London. This is a bigger part of me, so I struggled a lot for what example I should bring for number nine, because if I brought a really good example, it would have taken me 45 minutes, and still wouldn't, it was very, not always so easy to give over. Work with brisk. What does this mean when it comes to a gamta? There is no derech halimud that is more susceptible, that sets up an agadic, a principle, a narrative for you to really take apart something than brisker lumbus. Why is that? Because brisker lambdas, the way that it works, um, I'm talking very generally, is it always sets up a chilek, it sets up a distinction, but it deliberately doesn't take it any further and doesn't give you the why, doesn't give you the mechanics for why that chilek makes sense. It will tell you it, will tell you it makes sense just because the psukim or it's miyashiv a rambam and the rambam is talking about two different dinim. But it won't tell you further about what that distinction tells you about those dinim. I brought a fairly simple example uh, that I saw. That I saw uh, Reb Shechter uses a similar example. I was overjoyed that Reb Shechter doesn't quote a lot of Maharals in his svarim. This is one of the few places where he quotes a Maharal. But I remember Reb Hartman would always say he loves talking with briskers. He wrote he wrote the, the footnotes to all of the new Maharals. So he says he loves talking with briskers. And if you put out, I don't know if you can find it in farm stores, when he turned 50, his children put out a sefer called Bekerem Yehoshua, which has a lot of his shiurim, and a lot of his shiurim are based on brisket Torah. Uh, so the, the chilok over here, which is a very basic chilok, is a sira between uh, two gemaras that talk about, we have, we have one concept that talks about there's a mitzvah of chinuch on a father, and, uh, and there's another gemara in Yevamos that says, that a, a cousin can eat uh, nevelas and trefas, and a bezin doesn't have to push him away. So on the one hand, we have a mitzvah chinuch, that you have to be mechanach a child, and on the other hand, we have this uh, free-for-all that the Gemara Yivama says, you can let him eat nevelas and trefas. So there are three different chinukim that the Rishonim make uh, for how to be miyashed, these stiras, and whether or not a child, you have to educate them, or whether or not it's a free-for-all. One chinuk is it's talking about Two different children. Is it a three-year-old or is it a ten-year-old? Those are two different children. The other is a distinction between who's the one who's instructing the child. Is it the father? Is it the bezdin? But the third chiluk, and this is such a juicy, delicious chiluk, um, is what the Tosos Yishanam brings down that says it's a distinction in what are the commandments you're being mechanachem on. Are you being mechanachem on mitzvah say or mitzvah losase? If it's a mitzvah say, then the chinuch starts right away. It starts with a two-year-old. 
I'm sorry, if it's a low sasei, that starts right away, even if it's a two-year-old. But for mitzvah sasei, that's only once, uh, once that they, uh, I got it backwards. In the Tufla HaFrisha was talking about mitzvah low sasei, and the mitzvah chinuch that starts earlier from a very young age is by mitzvah sasei. I'm sorry I confused those. So everybody should stop when they see a chilak, when the brisker's taking the edge, or Rishon takes you to that precipice, and they say, it's a chilak. Here's Mrs. Asay, and here's Mrs. Lo Asay. Don't, don't pay for that. Don't, don't check out with your receipt and leave the, leave the store. You should follow up that question and say, wait a second, what, what is the time, what is the taste, what is that step, step deeper to explain this distinction? And those are the sorts of questions when you look at a chilak, that the Gemara makes, and you take that next leap and say, but why? Why is that the place that the Gemara is making this distinction? If you ever learn Kachim, uh, it's filled with it. Kachim is filled with all sorts of very interesting, intriguing dinim for when different things apply. I'll close with the following idea, and this is the, the tenth point, which is find your letter. Um, everybody has different mixoas, different areas in Torah learning that appeal to them, that excite them. And we oftentimes quote that Yisroel stands for Rashi Tevos, Yeshishim Ribuya, Osios Torah. There are 600,000 words in the Torah. But the Pnei Yoshua, which I quote over here, it's such an easy, basic shaila. He counted it up. It's not even close. It's 300,000. It's not even close to 600,000. So what are we talking about? Yisroel stands that the Jewish people for the 600,000 letters in the Torah. So if you look at the different answers that the Hagaz Baruch Tam brings at the bottom, and they all basically say the same thing. That there are really there are really two parts to, to the letters to the Osios and the Torah. There is the static letters that are written there that are immutable that can't change that can't move. What we might even call the nomos. What we might even call those laws that can't be abrogated. And then and then there's a part. There's another three hundred thousand which are the Torah that comes from pronouncing those three hundred thousand letters. The Torah that comes from each of our hearts. The Torah. Of Aliba Demanda Omar, the Torah of the narratives of the Agadita, and with those together, the 300,000 words that are written, static, Biksav, in the Torah, and the 300,000 words of the Aliba Demanda Omar, the people pronouncing and finding meaning and ethics in those words, is what makes the Shishim Ribuyim Ozius La Torah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric.